Dostoevsky was fascinated by that. He loved the idea that people are often contradictory. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage Podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryant, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about literature and literary terms. This is something that uh, you made your career of, was teaching literature. Right. And I think knowing a little bit about literature and knowing a little bit about your um, uh, literary history and some trivia... I think that's all good. It will save you from some embarrassment in life. Yes, and I always used to tell my students the other reason to study classic literature so you can understand the cartoons in The New Yorker. Yes, right. Lots of practical uses. I used to have an English lit professor at Berkeley who said, this will uh, help you in your cocktail conversation. (laughs) You could save yourself from all kinds of embarrassment. Today, uh, Time Magazine had their list of top 100 female writers assigned in college courses. And um, number 10 was George Eliot. They got that one right. Right. We talked about Marianne Evans earlier at a podcast. But number 97 was Evelyn Waugh. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, Evelyn Waugh was an English man. Right. (laughs) <laughs> who wrote Brideshead Revisited and, and other popular <laughs> things early on in the last century, not this century, the t- early on in the 20th century. Well, I wanted to start out with the term hero um, because I used to have a lot of problems with this with the students in my class. Um, they wanted to call the main character in a play or a novel a hero. And there's a reason that the uh, teachers object to that, especially at the college level. Um, hero has a, a lot of different meanings. Um, for one thing, in, um, in Shakespeare, it's a woman's name. But the main character of a play or a novel is not necessarily heroic. And the term heroic we associate with courage, strength, steadfastness, boldness, you know, all those qualities that we think of as heroic. But heroes don't necessarily have all those qualities. I think it's complicated by the fact that there's such a huge popularity of superheroes these days, especially in the movies. And if you ask somebody in an ordinary conversation, who's your hero, they're not going to pick uh, somebody who's been maligned or discredited. They're going to pick somebody who has a, a stature that they admire. Yeah, but a lot will depend on the context. If you were talking with um, say physicists, they might say, "Oh, Einstein's my hero." <laughs> if you're talking to a, a gardener, it might be somebody who grows the most perfect roses or something. Mm-hmm. So a lot depends on the context these days for how people use hero. There is a threshold for character, though, too, because uh, at one time a comedian might have said, well, Bill Cosby is my hero. Right. <laughs> and once there's a fall, no comedian is calling Bill Cosby a hero anymore, even though his 
comedy style, his timing and all that still remain intact, but he obviously has discredited himself thoroughly. Right, but, and like I said, we, it has these positive connotations when we're talking about the general world, but when you're talking about literature, heroes aren't necessarily ideals to be followed. One of the other ideas, and I'll get into this in more detail in a minute, but one of the things that annoys me is seeing articles in which Hollywood executives are looking at a script and saying, well, how can we make this character more relatable? We need to have something in here that people I can identify with. And you sometimes hear um, people who watch TV or movies uh, saying the same thing, that they really want somebody in what they read or what they see uh, to be relatable. And, of course, if the character was totally alien um, from anything that you have, you wouldn't be able to understand it. I used to explain that in my science fiction classes, that no aliens in science fiction are truly alien, except if they are incomprehensible. If you want to interact with an alien, they have to have something in common uh, with human beings. And But the problem is that really good literature rarely has superhero-type heroes in it. The, the main characters are not uh, ideal in every way. I think people can understand this when it relates to television. If you look at recent popular shows, which have really stirred up a lot of excitement, um, take Tony Soprano. Uh, he's nobody's idea of a hero. He's not only deeply flawed, but his, his main job is being a crook. But you can watch it and say, ah, he's just absolutely fascinating. You can still relate to him, even though you would not want him living next door and you would probably not want to be him. An even more extreme example is Walter White and Breaking Bad or Dexter, the serial killer on the series of the same name. So there's been a, a real vogue in recent years for protagonists that is, the people who dominate the action are in the foreground and through whose point of view we see much of the action um, for being downright evil and not at all what we traditionally call heroic. No, and you're talking about a distinction between sort of your everyday notion of what's heroic and what, what a hero is and in literature what a hero does and what are the characteristics of a hero in literature, and it's there where you might want to go toward the term protagonist to make that dis help further make that distinction. Yeah, another example is Patricia Highsmith's character Tom Ripley. Uh, there's been a number of movies based on him, and he's again uh, could be considered an anti-hero. An anti-hero is not the same thing as a villain, and that gets people confused. But maybe we ought to stop for a minute and mention a hero versus heroine. So a, a female hero is a heroine, uh, whether it's Supergirl or Alice in Wonderland. But you have to remember to spell it with an E on the end. With an E on the end, yeah, right. Otherwise, you're talking about the drug, heroin. And that is pretty common, actually. And if you're talking about the drug, similarly, you don't want to put the E on the end. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember composing the cartoon to go along with your entry, Heroin, Heroin, with a picture of Joan of Arc. And I said, ah, you can't get enough of Joan of Arc? Maybe you have a heroin addiction. Uh, <laughs> heroin with an E there. All right. 
Yeah, so got to be careful with that particular one. Now, just to talk a little more deeply about hero and what a hero is in, in literature. And of course, um, a lot of what you come up against when you talk about heroes and archetypal heroes is the archetypal heroic journey that a hero has to go through a whole kind of a quest and has to experience deep trouble and perhaps uh, die metaphorically or or visit the underworld or do something really off, get in a really terrible mess and then emerge from it better, stronger. Now that's what a hero's journey is. Is is there any anything particularly different about a hero and a heroine? Or no, it's just that the term doesn't get used as often for women. I think, um, but it's not that just heroes traditionally go through a lot of problems that they have to face and overcome, but they are also almost always deeply flawed. If you go back to the earliest uh, example that is commonly known is Odysseus and the Odyssey. And um, he's very bright. He's very clever. uh, He's quite brave. He's also a schemer and a liar and a seducer. Um, When we talk about him wandering for all those years after the Trojan War and all his adventures, if you look at what the Odyssey says closely uh, the majority of that time he was shacking up with beautiful women um on a couple of different islands and uh, not uh, buzzing home to his sweet wife penelope who was faithfully waiting for him all this time but that's not exactly the way it's put in the journey no but if you look at him in other greek literature he's pretty negatively portrayed a lot of the time He's the one that invents the Trojan horse, but he's also in the Trojan women uh, tragedy, uh, the one that uh, calls for the sacrifice of the heirs to the throne by throwing them off the parapet. Um, He tricks one cursed guy into joining the war, uh, much against his will. He does a lot of things that are um, pretty low and mean. and uh, He threatens to kill the nursemaid when she recognizes him when he comes home, if she dares to say anything. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. You know, he is, he's tough, but he can be also quite cruel and very self-centered. And uh, that's just part of his character. A classic tragic hero is Oedipus, and he's not a role model. <laughs> you know, his, just about everything he does is a huge mistake. You can say, well, it's not entirely his fault because he was cursed from birth. Uh, but his insistence on plowing ahead and doing whatever he wants and defying the gods is what brings him down. And if you look at Lancelot in the Arthur legends, you know, he's this great, a knight who can fight like anybody he's terrifically handsome um, but he seduces the king's wife and thereby causes the downfall of the, the round table and the death of just about everybody around him so the idea of a flawless character is not traditionally associated with the idea of hero in older literature it's not until you get to the romantic period that people start to think about the knight in shining armor as, as being uh, you know, something to emulate, uh, an ideal. 
and that's really late 18th, early 19th century is where the modern notion of the heroic really evolves, which isn't so tied up with all these profound flaws that we find in earlier heroes. Mm-hmm. Okay. And not surprisingly, it's during that same period that the anti-heroes begin to emerge as well. Yeah. Now, there's such a thing as a heroic figure who is very stereotypical, but has flaws not only in the ancient world, but in the modern one. I'm thinking about tortured superheroes like uh, Batman in the most recent incarnations of as the Dark Knight. Um, who is, you know, really wrathful and gloomy and vengeful and uh, not at all a, a nice guy and sometimes really goes over the line to almost villainy. But that's not an anti-hero. That's a tortured hero. It's a different kind of things. Um, and the the concept of anti-hero and as it's developed in literature and has proliferated in novels and stories really has been dominant since the beginning of the 20th century. So it's essentially a modern sort of phenomenon. Wikipedia has a a pretty good definition, which I just want to read here. Um, An anti-hero or anti-heroine is a protagonist who lacks conventional heroic qualities, such as idealism, courage, and morality. These individuals often possess dark personality traits, such as disagreeableness, dishonesty, and aggressiveness. These characters are usually considered conspicuously contrary to an archetypal hero. It's good to keep those characteristics in mind, because when literary critics and teachers use the term anti-hero, that's usually the set of ideas they have in mind. You can't just take all of the qualities that make a cliched hero and make their opposites into anti-hero it's not that simple so um usually the term anti-hero is used of men and uh, some of the most common are uh, leopold bloom and ulysses by james joyce uh, who's just this advertising salesman whose wife is sleeping with another man and who is wandering around through Dublin um, and is quite intelligent, but he's sort of defeated in life and nobody respects him really. And uh, he's kind of a miserable character. Um, another one that's often mentioned is Mousseau in The Stranger by Camus. Um, I won't go into any detail about this, but if these are books that people who read literature are commonly run into. So I was thinking, what about a female anti-hero? And um, there are plenty in literature, but instead of choosing something fairly obscure, I think Hannah Horvath, the character played by Lena Dunham on Girls, is a classic anti-hero. She's self-obsessed. She's impulsive. She's not sensitive to the way other people are feeling. Uh, She causes great problems for herself all the time. and those are sort of anti-heroic qualities. She's certainly neurotic as well. And as you say, just because they're called anti-hero, you, it doesn't mean that you will not identify with them and sometimes identify with them very deeply. Yeah, and it may be their flaws particularly that make you identify with them. 
yeah, the character that uh, a lot of adolescents, including myself, grew up uh, holding up that way was Holden Caulfield in Catching the Rye, was a real anti-hero. He had, uh, you know, every every identifiable characteristic of that, but at the same time, it was that his fragility that really made him so attractive and appealing to a, a brooding and moody adolescent. Right. But the one I want to focus on is the underground man, as he's called, from Fyodor Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground, first published in 1864. I just went through the book for the first time myself, and I was pretty surprised at how modern it is. Yeah, it's very modern. I taught it for years. I inherited a course which uh, I called Reason, Romanticism, and Revolution when I first started teaching, and it covered... Uh, various topics from the French Revolution and the Enlightenment um, up to Marxism and explored philosophy and literature and art and music. And one of my core texts in that class was Notes from Underground. I did a very detailed study guide of it, which has had over a quarter million visitors, and it's on the web, and we'll put a link up to it. And I want to just start this discussion by reading the introductory paragraphs from that study guide. Mm-hmm. By the way, this title is a problem. Uh, notes from underground is usually referred to often translated notes from the underground. Uh, the problem is that uh, as, as it turns out, when you read the story, you learn that what's being alluded to there is the image of some little creature like a rat. <laughs> living under the floorboards of a house not taking part in the main life that's going on above but sort of cowering down there and being on the fringe of things and listening in and uh, and so on so it you mustn't think of an underground uh, like revolutionaries who are you know altering their identities deliberately in order to prepare for the revolution or something like that mhm no, this is somebody who claims he's lived underground for 40 years. Right. It's not literally living underground and not hiding. Right. So, Notes from Underground is one of the most influential pieces of fiction in Western European history. It has attracted attention for many reasons. First, it contains an all-out assault on Enlightenment rationalism, and the idea of progress foreshadows many such assaults, in the mid to late 20th century. And, uh, if you've been following the presidential campaign, you can hear plenty of that. Second, it is an outstanding example of Dostoevsky's psychological skills, depicting a character motivated by many contradictory impulses. Such contradictions were not clearly understood in the 19th century, but Freud and modern psychology generally were to explore in depth the irrational bases of much human thought. Third, one of the most salient characteristics of the underground man is his profound self-contempt combined with an exquisitely sensitive ego, a combination that is much discussed these days. I used to talk about that a lot in class, that these, this characteristic of somebody who really loathes themselves but is extremely sensitive to criticism from the outside. And um, I've had quite a few students who said, oh, yeah, I know somebody like that. And a few others who said, yeah, I'm like that. I used to have students do written responses to these things. And I would warn my students before we began discussing the underground man. um, 
just be careful what you say about what you think of this character because somebody sitting beside you may be identifying very strongly <laughs> with it. Fourth, the story contains one of the first characters whose childhood experiences have led him to fear, love, and intimacy even though he longs for them. Another topic of intense interest currently. Fifth, it portrays one of the first anti-heroes in fiction, a protagonist utterly lacking every trait of the romantic hero and living out a futile life on the margins of society. Such figures were to dominate much serious fiction in the mid-20th century, notably Albert Camus' Museau and The Stranger. Because the narrator, he has no name of this story, is a thoroughly disagreeable person who seems to go out of the way to offend his readers, some care is needed to read the story well. First, it is important to keep in mind that the underground man, as he is traditionally called, is not Fyodor Dostoevsky, as the notes at the beginning and end of the story make clear. He shares some of Dostoevsky's ideas, but he is also the target of Dostoevsky's satire. Dostoevsky enjoyed handicapping himself by placing some of his favorite arguments in the mouth of a character he despised. In this and in other works, he strongly resists the impulse to sweep the reader away by making his views irresistible. He wants you to be aware of both their strengths and weaknesses and make your mind up independently. Second, although some readers find that they are identifying with the underground man to some extent, unlike most popular fiction, this is not a story in which you are expected to identify with the narrator. The danger is, in fact, that the reader will become so exasperated with his tone and manner as to simply refuse to pay attention to what he is saying. Consider the underground man as a complex portrait, lacking surface appeal, but filled with fascinating detail, which reveals itself only upon close examination. Third, it is crucial not simply to let the underground man's self-contradictions cancel each other out and dismiss him as a madman, whose ravings are not worth deciphering. It is precisely in the tension between various emotions and ideas that the significance of the underground man's narrative lies. Close reading will reveal a careful and consistent psychological portrait. I started out my career as a medievalist, and it was interesting to me that when you would read a medieval romance and a character had conflicting emotions, it was usually narrated as if they were sequential, so that uh, a person would say, um, uh, you know, I'm in love with this woman, even though she's resisting my courtship. When I see her, my heart lights up, and then I am gay and happy, and uh, I'm uh, entranced. Um, and then I remember how she rejects me, and I feel sad and depressed and, and sorrowful and so on. And then they didn't really have a grasp on the notion that you could have those two emotions both at the same time. And Dostoevsky was fascinated by that. He loved the idea that people are often contradictory. And this was one thing in which he felt he had a, a criticism to bring against the Enlightenment, which called on people to be rational as much as possible. And he said, uh, to be deeply human is to be deeply irrational as well as rational. He was very ahead of the curve, uh, as far as I can tell. You have to remember, this is the mid-19th century, 
when the fashionable thing for European novelists to do was to tell big, epic, sweeping stories with lots of characters and lots of events and lots of historical backdrop and uh, everything that happened had a consequence, uh, a rational consequence. A, and, and here in the middle of all of this is this novel about... Well, it's not even really a novel, is it? It's kind of an anti-novel itself. Right. It's actually in two parts. The first part is just a rant. It has hardly any narrative at all. Right. Why don't you read the first paragraph of that? Because it gives you the feel for where this guy's coming from. Yeah, I'd like to read that one. Yeah, what I want to do is read this and then go back and discuss it line by line. Part one is called The Mouse Hole. I'm a sick man. A mean man. There's nothing attractive about me. I think there's something wrong with my liver. But actually, I don't understand a damn thing about my sickness. I'm not even too sure what it is that's ailing me. I'm not under treatment. Never have been. Although I have a great respect for medicine and doctors. Moreover, I'm morbidly superstitious. Enough at least to respect medicine. With my education, I shouldn't be superstitious, but I am just the same. No, I'd say I refuse medical help simply out of contrariness. I don't expect you to understand that, but it's so. Of course, I can't explain whom I'm trying to fool this way. I'm fully aware that I can't spite the doctors by refusing their help. I know very well that I'm harming myself and no one else. But still, it's out of spite that I refuse to ask for the doctor's help. So my liver hurts? Good. Let it hurt even more. Uh, those are the words of someone that you know you absolutely cannot trust a single thing he is ever going to tell you. But at the same time, there's just a lot there to, to pull apart. Well, you may not be able to trust the literal statements that he makes, but he's extremely self-revealing. Very expressive. <laughs> Very expressive. Yes. You can understand him better than he understands himself, perhaps, although he's always trying to be the one that's on top. Now, the typical beginning student who's reading this story reads that paragraph and says, this is really annoying. I don't want to know anything more about this guy. As if he were sitting down on a park bench and started this rant next to me, I would want to get out of there so fast. And some other readers will say, eh, what's the point? There's nothing here because he's saying one thing and then he's saying the opposite. So they cancel each other out. There, there's nothing left. And of course, both of those won't get you anywhere in this story. You have to be able to grapple with the notion of contrary ideas and contrary emotions being contained in the same brain at the same time. So he starts off by saying he's sick. Now, he never does go back into the medical things in the rest of the story. So, mentally sick could also be a part of it. He says, I'm a mean man. Um, as we'll see, if you read later, he has hardly any uh, interactions except with the general public in the office where he works. Uh, he's a real loner. And so, he's he's mean to the people he's supposed to be serving. But uh, meanness is not his main problem. And he tells you up front, there's nothing attractive about me. That's a really powerful statement. You know, people like to believe there's at least something 
that people might like. You know, maybe their modesty, maybe their honesty. And the interesting thing about this, uh, we often think, well, honesty is a very good characteristic to have, right? But if you're honest about hating people, if you're honest about hating yourself, if you're honest about every negative impulse that flows through you, that doesn't make you admirable or at all likable. The uh, reference to the liver is kind of unusual. That doesn't mean he's an alcoholic. In the 19th century in Europe, there was a lot of fascination with the liver as the seat of a lot of medical problems. And people often associated all kinds of illnesses with their liver. So he's just plugging into that cliche at this point. And then he's saying he's not sure what's ailing him. He doesn't know what's wrong. And it makes clear that, you know, he doesn't have a broken leg. He doesn't have... Uh, severe headaches or something where he could pinpoint it. It's just this vague sense that all is not right with him. And then he launches into saying he has great respect for doctors and uh, then saying that he's also superstitious. Now, this introduces for the first time something that's going to be one of the main topics in the rest of part one, that is his anger and revulsion against the limitations that the Enlightenment brought with its insistence on logic and science and so on. And a lot of modern extreme conservatives who uh, put a lot of emphasis on tradition and are object to rationalist ways of approaching ideas that want to change things love to draw this book. And uh, for that reason, a lot of uh, leftist-leaning teachers don't teach it don't find him appealing um, because he's extremely articulate about what he thinks is wrong with rationalism. But he also portrays his anti-rationalism as self-defeating. At uh, one point, he goes into a tirade saying that a two plus two is very fine. But what about, I like two, two plus two, two equals, equals five. five. Yeah. Yeah. Two plus two equals five. And he knows that's not correct in mathematical terms. Nevertheless, he feels that it gives him freedom to rebel against the logical, even mathematically logical. Um, the image that I have of him sometimes is just a guy ramming his head against the wall. And he's not knocking the wall down. He's not succeeding. He knows he can't knock down the wall with his head. He just gives himself a headache. But the experience tells him that he's alive and that he has free will. And those were very important things to Dostoevsky. Um, and then he talks about being superstitious. I don't know exactly. Um, I don't think he is superstitious. He really doesn't talk about superstition anywhere else in the book. I think he brings it up only so he can make this sarcastic comment that respecting medicine is a form of superstition. We hear something similar to this when uh, anti-evolutionary speakers are are saying, well, uh, scientists um, believe in faith, too. They have faith in their theories, and that's a religion. Um, so he's doing something similar to that, only instead of trying to make medicine 
a good irrational belief. He's saying that uh, his hatred of medicine is something that he clings to, even though he knows it's not rational. So he says, I'd say I refuse medical help simply out of contrariness. And then he does the most interesting thing. He stops talking about himself for a moment and turns on to the reader. Now, this is uh, dangerous because this is the point at which a person who is used to reading books, not analytically, but subjectively, and thinking, okay, this guy's talking to me and, and imagining him as a real person, he attacks the reader. He says, I don't expect you to understand that. In other words, you're you're stupid <laughs> uh, or at least you're you're not sensitive you don't understand people like me i understand what's going on i may be unlikable but i understand myself and i can explain it and if you don't understand it well that's because you're not as smart as me or as sensitive as me and that gets echoed over and over again through the story that has a big ripple effect through the whole story right but then he thinks, okay, he hears himself say that. And I think, oh, gee, that was a really dumb thing to say. He says, of course, I can't explain whom I'm trying to fool this way. I mean, what's the point? Uh, the introduction makes clear that he has in mind that he wants to tell the world all about this, but he also doesn't want anybody to read it. <laughs> and he insists toward the end that he has no intention of having anybody read it. So he's fantasizing this encounter with people. He's insulting them and then realizing that by doing these, acting in kind of a stupid way himself and says, I, I, I'm fully aware I can't spite the doctors by refusing their help. Okay, I know that. That's what you're thinking, right? Just because you have a prejudice and you let yourself suffer, I can tell I'm, I've anticipated your objection to me. And because I'm already articulating it, it undermines you. Now, you're not able to be better or smarter than me because I already know what you're going to say. And that's something that's very familiar to me. Don't bother trying to feel superior to me. It's not uh, surprising that a lot of readers at this point, even if they don't ex understand exactly what's going on, start to feel acutely uncomfortable with this character. I know very well that I'm harming myself and no one else, but still, it's out of spite that I refuse to ask for the doctor's help. So my liver hurts? Good. Let it hurt even more. So that's uh, the ideas of the a man from underground. That first paragraph really has, it does contain so much that does continue on throughout the whole book and gets amplified and there are many repercussions that go through the book and uh you're right it's not something that uh he, you know he's not a character of course that uh, anybody truly gets into as uh, you know oh this guy could be a great friend or anything like that he's miserable and you don't want to be like him but at the same time uh, in a way, you can't stop looking, and you also can't help but identify with him on some level. And I have encountered people who deeply identified with him. Mm -hmm. The other characteristic that I mentioned, of which is dealt with at length in the second half, um, part two, is his desperate need for love. And you get a very clear outlining of how that developed from his childhood. Uh, it's an unwanted, unloved child 
and how needy he is, and yet how simultaneously he drives away anything that looks like love or affection and makes it impossible. And in a way, this is protecting himself, because to open yourself up to the love of someone else is to make yourself vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And he is terrified of that vulnerability, and so he turns on the people and attacks them. Instead, I knew a guy in graduate school who was rather like this. Um, I won't identify him enough to, so I could track him down, but he was blind, and um, he was very good about uh, understanding music. He was a music major, and um, he was extremely articulate and intelligent sensitive but very crabby and and um sharp-tongued and um, a young woman befriended him and and actually became his girlfriend and he was always anxiously asking people um if she was really good looking because he could not understand that even though he couldn't see what she looked like he couldn't understand why somebody would love him that he considered himself so profoundly unlikable that he thought she must be just taking pity on him. And he kept lashing out at her again and again until he drove her away. And it's very much what happens in a miniature scale in part two of Notes from Underground. It's like the uh, Groucho Marx joke that Woody Allen made famous in Annie Hall. I wouldn't want to say I wouldn't want to belong to any club that would have someone like me as a member. Well, it's a psychological portrait. It's also, I read it also as a, especially part one, as a philosophical novel that you, you mentioned Camus. I also think of Kafka and yes. uh, other European writers, especially European writers, who whose work really straddles the line between uh, novel and, and philosophical treatise. And also there's an element of that uh, postmodern kind of anti-story, looking ahead to Nabokov and many others. I've just picked a Russian writer for, you know, as, as exemplary. But I know going back to Dostoevsky's time, as we talked about earlier, that this was not at all a common way to tell a story, but he is telling a story. It's hinted at around the edges, and you have to kind of fill in the gaps yourself. Right, except you do get a pretty straightforward narrative of his encounter with this young prostitute in part two. Um, And what's interesting to me is that in part one, he's struggling constantly to keep the upper hand. He's ranting at the reader and telling the reader why they're stupid and insisting on his own superiority and then telling humiliating stories about himself in which he's very much not in charge uh, and yet... Uh, he feels like he ought to be and like the people that have contempt for him are themselves contemptible. And when he encounters this young woman, it flips. And you see him, not this uh, guy who thinks he's in charge and, and dominating everybody, but instead just almost destroyed by her, um, by her openness and her fragility and her her love. And he, um, well, you should read the story. <laughs> you should, yeah. There are ramifications here, too. Uh, thinking of European novelists at the time being obsessed with the super superman, not the superhero, but the superman and the ideas of Nietzsche and, and 
this really gets played out in Crime and Punishment, his his later novel where uh, he updates this, uh, well, he doesn't update the character, but this Raskolnikov, the main character there, obviously you don't identify directly with him either, but um, he believes in his superiority, and that leads him to do really horrible things. Right. And Notes from Underground is not that often read, certainly not in high schools, and even on the college level, and uh, Crime and Punishment is usually the novel that's selected. For one thing, it's shorter than some of his other works. Uh, my favorite is The Idiot, but um, I think his greatest work is unquestionably uh, The Brothers Karamazov. And that's a good example of the, the contradictory impulses. Again, he has these brothers who have different qualities. And Alyosha, the Christ-like brother, who is uh, actually a monk and um, wonderfully forgiving and kind and loving and generous, all these things, and heroic in a religious sense. And you have Ivan, who is the rationalist, um, but also uh, pretty cruel and uh, insistently outspoken. These are the two polar opposites. There are also other characters that are interesting as well, but Ivan articulates the argument against religion so powerfully that many people have gone away from this novel saying, okay, so this Christianity is not worth believing in. Um, although the book also is read by people who say, okay, this is the ultimate Christian novel. And this is something that... It, takes great courage to do, to take the ideas that mean the most to you, in Dostoevsky's case, Christianity, and try to think, okay, what would a person who is utterly opposed to what I believe in say? And what's the most powerful arguments I can put into their mouths? These days, often people will ask a, a an author if the main character in the book is based on themselves and um, expect that the book is going to reflect the interests and ideas of the writer. It takes great imagination and great courage as well as skill to articulate the ideas of somebody who's opposed to what's most important to you. And that's one of the reasons I have great respect for Dostoevsky. Mm-hmm. And uh, just to wrap up my final thinking about about this, because we we had been talking about the word hero is where we started, and uh, I mentioned earlier the hero's journey, and the journey involves typically a, a visit to the underworld or a visit underground. Yeah, this is Joseph Campbell's formula. For Joseph Campbell's formula and and others, then he'll emerge from that with uh, with a new kind of enlightenment, but. Underground man seems like he went to underground and just stayed. <laughs> yes. However, the thing is that if you're identifying too closely with the character, you won't get the true triumph of this story, which is this character has understood and articulated his failures in a way that makes for great literature. And um, the, the naive impulse when reading, say, a tragedy or a story with an unhappy ending is saying, oh, that's really terrible. Why would I want to read that? Oh, why would, but people can feel exhilarated by saying, yes, that is a horrible truth about life, whatever is getting articulated, like in a Greek tragedy. But how brilliantly expressed, how true that is, how applicable that is to life as we know it. And that in itself can be a very good feeling. And one last 
plug for something a little closer to our own era. Uh, the update in a lot of ways of Underground Man was Invisible Man, the Ralph Ellison novel. Mm. Yes. About one century later than Dostoevsky, but uh, American, modern in a lot of ways, and also in many ways forward-looking also. Very contemporary, both of them, actually. Yes, although you don't get that much inside the Invisible Man's head. Um, it's more he is the outsider observing what happens to him in this case because he's an African-American and uh, he's tortured. He certainly does have contradictions as well. Um, but, yeah, I think you're right that there is probably some Dostoevsky influence in that novel. Sure. Yeah, well, he's he's a much more sympathetic character than Underground Man because you're dramatically brought through all the experiences that bring him to this point of calling himself invisible. He calls himself invisible. The underground man calls him underground. Either way, they're just people that are not seen in society. But uh, a great, great book and a great example uh, has to be the prototype for the anti-hero. Right. I I want to mention also that this book is a a ferocious attack on socialism. And I used to use it side by side with Zola's Germinal, which is uh, a pro-union organizing book and and then i would teach the communist manifesto so (laughs) we get this very wide range of politics in the 19th century oh yeah 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 okay well paul thank you this was interesting really fascinating all right talk to you next time That'll do it for the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.